Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. I'm your host, Sanderson, and uh, today we're going to be joined by Ian Leslie, who is an author, he's a consultant, he's a writer, and he's just written this amazing book on conflict. And by the end of the conversation, and having read his book, I'm really convinced that I want to have more conflict in my life. And that seems weird, and that sounds weird even coming out of my mouth, because I am a conflict-averse person. Uh, Conflict-averse person sounds like like some sort of uh, euphemism that you would use uh, to describe someone. So, uh, well, in some ways it is. Maybe the right way of saying it is that I'm a a chicken. I don't like upsetting people. I don't want to be upset by people. But uh, you're going to learn that, in fact, relationships uh, are better if you argue more. They're more likely to survive. Children who have got more arguments in the house and more conflict are often happier than children who have less. And workplaces get more stuff done and they get it done better if they have healthy conflict. And so this is exactly the sort of topic we love to explore at the Life on this podcast because we're all about getting into those big questions, getting into some of the thorny issues and exploring topics which are going to help you live your life as fully as possible, uh, whether that be in your personal life, at work, wherever that might be. And so, yeah, we really hope you enjoy it. Uh, Please do like and subscribe if you've got that ability. Rate, share, all of those things. And we've got this podcast, but we're so much more than that. It is a community that meets online in these really amazing small groups for group coaching sessions. If you're interested, there'll be a link below. And now over to Ian. Thanks so much for listening. You're great. And at the end, there's some more sort of general chat and uh, reflection and stuff. So, uh, Ian, uh, welcome to the Lifefulness podcast. Uh, I am very well, thank you. Um, I'm uh, enjoying the, uh, the slight reopening that is occurring in this country as we speak. People are allowed to uh, travel a little bit. Well, I've actually got outside the square mile or around my house um, for the first time in a long time. So um, I, I'm pretty excited about that. What was that like? Terrifying. Did you like, did terrifying. You... <laughs> really? Really? Or that, I mean, I'm a bit, it's like it seems a bit uh, foreign, yeah. this moving from place well, I'm, to place. I'm, I'm really, I'm a little bit worried that, that yeah, when, when we reopen I just won't know what to do. You know, how do I interact with people that, I, that are not the people that I live with? I don't know. Maybe I don't want to see any friends. Yes. <laughs> you know, maybe I liked it like this. I don't know. I, it's, it's time for uh, some some spiritual reinvention. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. It's an, so particularly having just written a book, which is all about the benefits of conflict, which we're going to get into, you're suddenly going to see your friends and you're going to have these newfound set of tools to really have at them. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're not prepared uh, for this. In way, this new Ian. And so, well, before we get onto that book, because uh, I loved it and uh, and I'm someone who's super conflict averse. And me too, so, me too. Yeah, there was loads of great stuff in it. But we always ask all our guests, what was the spiritual, religious or philosophical background to your childhood? And you can answer that in as broad or narrow um, a sense as Very you secular and atheist, pr- pretty much. Um, neither of my parents were stroke are 
believers um uh and neither of them were really raised uh to be religious in a really strong sense so they weren't kind of like anti-believers either they were just sort of well we don't really go in for that kind of thing um uh although i guess my dad would kind of like argue the case for atheism when we were so i grew up and i kind of pretty much got that from them um and so I'm not a believer, but I, what the change in my thinking over the years though has, has been, I've come to think of, I've come to respect uh, religion a lot more uh, in my adult life and to appreciate its, or its virtues. Um, so even though I'm still not a believer, I, 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 I am a kind of um, respecter and, and uh, in some ways an admirer of, of organized religion. I mean, I think that's something which rings true of me and probably of James as well. And I went through my disrespectful uh, of religion stage, but then the sort of founding uh, sort of of Sunday Assembly and the work that I did uh, afterwards and still do came from being in a Christmas carol service and thinking, actually, there's so much about this that I love, the singing, the community, uh, you know, thinking about improving yourself. Like, why on earth can't we do it in a way which is for everyone? And is there anything for you when you look at the religious or spiritual world and you think that would be a good lesson for the secular world? Yeah, I think learn? all the things you just talked about, the, the, the sense of community, uh, which is not just an abstract thing in, in religion, it's something that you practice every week. Now, I, you know, we can all point to like all the flaws and terrible things about organised religion, that's, that's easy, but we should recognise that something that has kind of sustained and nurtured the progress of the human race for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, there's probably something that's good about it. <laughs> you know, there's probably, it's likely that there's some virtues and, and we should kind of reflect on, 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 on what those are and not dismiss the whole thing out of hand. Seems reasonable to me. James, when was the moment, when was the moment that you sort of went for more of that switch of saying that we could learn something from religion or you made your move into becoming a religious had... minister? A weird experience with religion growing up in that I, I also grew up in a non-religious home, but went to a school with a Christian foundation. It, whenever I say Christian school, people in America think the evangelical private Christian religious school is not. It's just set up by a Christian in St. Paul's Cathedral hundreds of years ago, which is slightly different. But they did have a chapel and I did sing in the choir. So I sang in the chapel choir on Sundays, singing for the services. And I remember loving it. I absolutely loved the sense of community, the sense of a time set aside every week for the consideration of the most important questions, like why are we here and how should we treat each other? What's our purpose? The kind of sense of ritual and the calmness. I really enjoyed the chapel services. I just didn't believe a word of what they said. And so that seed was always with me really of the sense of, there is something important about setting apart some part of your life for consideration of the big questions. But what if there was a space to do that if you weren't traditionally religious? And I finally found that place in the work that I do now. Uh, and so we're sort of both uh, people who've got an inherent conflict of being non-religious people who run uh, churches. But your book is about conflict of the sharper tooth kind. Like, what was it which like drew you to this subject of conflict like why did you yeah want I, to I get think into I, it? it was just basically looking around at the world and perhaps being on social media too much noticing it but but what, what but not just there everywhere noticing all the terrible 
arguments that people are having with each other um, <laughs> and, and, and just the sense of like uh, needless acrimony and hostility and no light being shed, just lots of heat. And um, that's what started me thinking about it. And I was like, well, why are we, why are we so bad at this? Um, and then my thinking kind of progressed as I, as I started thinking about it more. I, and I started to think, well, first of all, there's actually no particular reason why we should be good at this. You know, it's not like somebody comes along and says, this is how, when you disagree, if you want the disagreement to be productive and be interesting and shed some light on something, you need to behave like this. Uh, you know, we might have a basic sense that you're meant to be polite or something, but beyond that, you don't really get much help. You don't get training in, in disagreement. And the fact is, for most of our history as a, as a species, you know, or, or as cultures, we, we haven't done that much of it. We haven't really had to, because we usually kind of lived in settled communities where a lot of this stuff was kind of taken for granted. Even 50, 100 years ago, let alone 500, 1,000 years ago, um, tradition kind of guided you on a lot of the questions that you might otherwise dispute, you know, it, within, say, just within the home, that there would be a much clearer idea of who does what, right, what the division of labour is um, between the man and the woman and how children were meant to talk to their elders and so on. Um, and, and we've become much more democratic and egalitarian in spirit, which is a good thing, my view, um, probably yours. Um, <laughs> Right, you're off the podcast, Ian. Oh, sorry. This is uh, you haven't got. I that. I was this is uh, we're coming to this angle. Yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, so I so but but that that just sets up lots of more opportunities for, for disagreement and 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 conflict. So and and now and technology and the internet has kind of taken that another step further. You know, and kind of intensified it and exacerbated it. And now you can you're always coming across loads of different opinions. You know, and it's kind of shocking how many of them are like seem so stupid and disagreeable to you because they, you're just not used to them. Um, so you, you're not only getting different opinions within your kind of social circles because you live in, you work in more diverse workplaces or you live in cities, whatever. You're also getting opinions from all over the world on everything, including from people who have not given it a moment's thought until now. And it's like, oh God, so much stupidity out there. So I, 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 I just think like for all of us, it's just taken us unawares and we, we live in this world that's completely primed for disagreement all the time. And we're just, we're just not ready for it. And so I thought we could start to make ourselves ready for it. Uh, and I was going to think of like, to, maybe we'll do it later to get into like, what's the worst internet argument you've got into? I think that'll be a fun <laughs> thing to do. But uh, before we got there, <laughs> I really like an interesting idea that you brought up was this idea of the difference between high context and low context sort of communication. And I thought that that was a really interesting sort of like way of looking at the, the world of like this way of looking. And I'm wondering whether you could explain that for uh, our listeners, because it's really yeah, so revealing. It's, uh, it's related to, to what I was talking about in terms of tradition guiding you you know some contexts and not in, in others so it comes from uh, uh, anthropology and it's used uh it was used originally to talk about different countries uh different kind of regions of the world and how they have different cultures and different approaches to communication but actually it applies to pretty much any any situation so so a high context culture and the the, the kind of common example is is uh, china or other asian uh countries is one in which 
uh, tradition and social norms do a lot of guidance of the, the conversations that, that, that you're having. So if you're in a room, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in China and you're having a meeting, of course I'm, you know, wildly kind of stereotyping, or make it, but these are broad brushstrokes, but they're broadly, broadly true. Um, the, com the, the communication tends to be quite oblique and subtle and, and economical, right? Not that many words are used. People are kind of, people are gonna know their place in, the, in a kind of hierarchy in the room and everything is kind of like hinted at. And, um, there's a focus on relationships, maintaining relationships uh, and, and, and there's very little, like relatively little direct conflict and disagreement that's seen as both kind of gauche and quite unpleasant. Um, and so there's a kind of like subtle kind of interplay of, 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 of oblique hints. Um, so that's a high context uh, culture where, where really, you know, the, the norms of the culture are doing a lot of the communicating for you. So somebody doesn't really have to say much for you to go, oh, I know what she's saying, but oh, I know what he means by that because I, I understand that the code. In a low context culture, there isn't a shared code or, or not as much of a shared code. There's not as much kind of shared cultural norms. You're often in a more diverse people from different backgrounds. And not just racially diverse, but all sorts of different types of diversity. Um, and you have to explain everything. You have to kind of like spell everything out. <laughs> so, so a low context culture, again, it's all relative, but, but uh, at the United States um, uh, or, or, or you know, North America generally, you would say is, is a low context culture where you can't rely on tradition and norms so much. And there's a lot more articulation there's, uh, of things that you have to say everything. There's a lot, lot more words involved, right? Language plays a much bigger part. You don't just sit there and kind of raise an eyebrow. You know. But then again, and this is where you start to move away from countries, in certain contexts you do, right? So imagine, you know, okay, I've never been in a mafiosi meeting, but I've seen them in movies. But just to, Ian, <laughs> really? just to give you an example, you know, <laughs> you're sitting around a table with mafiosi and you're discussing whether or not to, to, to knock someone off. Nobody has to say, you, you see Godfather, you know, nobody has to say it. That's a high content, you, just a raised eyebrow or, a, or an oblique comment and people get the message. That's a high context conversation, right? Um, a low context conversation is like, I would have to explain what I'm talking about this guy and I'm questioning whether or not we need to shoot this guy because this, you know, and, and so low context can be kind of, anywhere high context can, can, can be anywhere but you see the difference and the internet is is a is a very low context culture right because it, what do you have you have the conditions where you have you know huge diversity uh, of people coming in from all sorts of no, there's no kind of settled norms um of of tradition of anything to kind of guide what what, what we're saying to each other um nobody knows anything about we literally very low context i don't know who this guy is that's just done a tweet or you know who that is. so you've got all this information and all these opinions coming in from nowhere and we're all trying to spell it because we've only got words so we don't we can't communicate with our with our bodies or our faces or you know just the atmosphere of the room which is kind of using these little bits of text in boxes it's the epitome of low 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 context and of course in a low context culture you have much more conflict because you're having to explain what you think all the time you're giving your opinions all the time and you find out how many opinions that you disagree with <laughs> you know you're suddenly confronted with all these opinions and you're like that's rubbish and so you just get into it um so that was a, a quite a sort of long-winded answer to your question but that, that, that's the, the kind of fundamental difference yeah but i th thought that is so useful because it 
like again it's just like a, a lens as to why on earth the internet can like for me i really i don't like conflict i perpetually think that every single thing i want to write on twitter should have a million footnotes to it just to go and sort of explain like why i'm joking or whatever else yeah. that might and the be the more you explain oh, particularly yeah it's like the more you talk the more you explain the worse it gets somehow the words don't yeah. help you know that's why you're so and, and shit Sanderson. We've uncovered it. I, I really, I, I really do think that because, like, if, if I'm in, if I'm in sort of company, I can say awful things to people, and generally they get that I'm a smiling like person. It doesn't really mean it that much. And then on Twitter, you just suddenly have like really insulted someone. You're like, exactly, oh gosh. Exactly. But I think it's we're in this like low context universe, so there's gonna be more conflict, and yet at the same time, we both like steer. We want to steer clear of it we're also like it's also more serious so like what are some of the myths around conflict which you are most surprised people... by well i i think the kind of biggest almost kind of a, it's an assumption that conflict is is bad for your relationships with with people um and it's one of the reasons that we we avoid it or at least justify our avoidance of it because i don't i don't want to get into that because we might kind of fall out or so on um and of course, like most myths, it has a grain of truth because conflict usually or often is, you know, a little bit uncomfortable and it puts a little bit of strain on your relationship. But what that picture misses is that unless you engage in it, the relationship is likely to deteriorate over time. So it's a bit like, the, you know, the analogy with, with exercise where, okay, doing exercise is a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, you're literally like tearing these tiny bits of, your, of muscle in but and and it's not it's a bit stressful right in, in the moment but but if that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it um it actually makes you stronger in the long term and and again you know if you engage in kind of open direct disagreement with with people you know people you work with or people you love um it's actually going to strengthen the relationship if, if, if it's done right um um so that's that's one myth i i think another myth is that um it should be the way to do it if you're going to do it right is to take all the emotion out of the disagreement and just talk it in in factual abstract theoretical terms which was which first of all is just completely unrealistic and there's uh, always something at stake you know it's all some sort of emotion at, at stake and and second it, it's just misunderstands the role of emotion like emotion and uh, makes you smarter like emotion is not the kind of like antithesis of 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 uh, of being an intellectual like people who think with their mind and and their, and their heart at the same time are, are actually people who get to the truth much much more quickly james as someone i know you are sort of quite reluctant to get into conflict what does what would you say that your relationship conflict style i have is? two very different conflict styles based on whether it's professional or personal I'm totally okay with professional conflict and intellectual conflict in particular. I think this might be a British thing, by the way. I found when I got to the United States that they were much less likely to tell someone their idea was bad or their, their work wasn't good, whereas I was perfectly happy, you know, given this very, um, well, just really conflict-filled education that I had to be like, that's rubbish. You know, this is wrong for these reasons. And I didn't th think it was personal. 
but interpersonal conflict of where I have to get into an environment where I feel like I might be criticizing someone else or they might feel bad because of something that I've said, I, I'm very avoidant. I don't like that. And I really love your metaphor, Ian, of exercise being like it's something uncomfortable that you might avoid because it's initially uncomfortable. But if you don't do it over time, your relationships get weaker. Why is that? Why is it that relationships deteriorate over time if you don't engage in conflict? The kind of line of research that, that really made me realise that, made me think about that, was talking to psychologists who study couples, who, who study romantic relationships, um, which is an interesting field in itself, obviously, um, but it's also a microcosm for, for any type of relationship. It's just, it's just a, a useful way to study because you've only got two people to put in the lab at the same time. So, but actually you can extend it. Um, and they found um, more recently, really in the last 10, 20 years, this kind of new way of thinking about conflict, I think was just something that couples should avoid, at least kind of heated conflict, you know. Um, but just having looked at couples and watched them, observed them interact and then kind of tracked them over, over the months and years to come, they, they realized that the couples who were actually quite quick to get into direct arguments, often quite angry arguments, were actually the ones who were more likely to stay together over the long term. Um, that blew yeah. my mind, by the way. Right. That was just such, and, but they didn't even, like after the arguments, they didn't. Uh, they didn't say, "Oh, that was fun. I enjoyed that." Or, and neither did they think that they had particularly got anywhere. Yeah. But, but a year later, it turned out that they had. And you know, as someone who's conflict averse, uh, that was. You know, the the reason is, is a couple of reasons, but one of them is the main one is conflict is information, as as one of the psychologists put it to me. Um, when when you're in an argument you are getting a real insight into what that person really feels and really thinks, which they don't necessarily tell you in the kind of nice, polite, slightly passive, you know, day-to-day -day, um, relationship. And so even if it's uncomfortable, you're suddenly going, oh, so that's what she really cares about. You know, learning what, what each other really care about. And often you're, you're, one of the things you're learning is that they really care about you, by the way. You know, they, you, you're reminded of how much investment they have in you in this relationship, even if the way you learn that is, what, is that they're furious with you. <laughs> um, so so, so, so that's, that's the kind of fundamental reason why. You're getting a glimpse into somebody's heart and, and somebody's mind, you know, in, in the heat of an argument. And do, wouldn't it be better to just say that, like to say, I really care about these, to learn how to do it without the anger and the heat, or is it not better? Is Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, because actually it sort of answers itself. You can imagine that. If you actually imagine that in your head, it just wouldn't be convincing. <laughs> you know, um, we, we don't just communicate through words, right? We, we, we communicate in all sorts of ways, and, and, and emotion... Uh, which can, comes through your, the pitch of your voice, you know, with a look on your face, the way you're moving, it, it, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not just in, in the words. And if you turn it into this kind of like abstract verbal thing, it's, it's not convincing somehow. And you don't really feel like you're getting a truthful, there's something about the heat of an argument. We feel like, yeah, this is true. Now we're getting down to re the real stuff here. 
Um, and if in communication science, because of psychology, communication, whatever, they talk about two levels, the fundamental two levels in any communication is the, the content level and the relationship level down below, right? So the content level is the thing that we are talking about. Um, so so we're, we, we, or, or arguing about, right? So we're arguing about whether or not you, I'm drinking too much or you're spending too much, whatever it is. Um, and then there's a relationship level, which is how do you feel about me and how do I feel about you? Do you, do you like and respect me? Do you, and that relationship is totally unarticulated. It's non-verbal. But unless that relationship level is kind of stable and pe both parties or all parties feel like they're basically okay with each other, they understand each, each other, and, uh, they're getting the respect or, or affection that they deserve, then the, the content level just gets completely derailed. Right. So, so if there's kind of instability down below, it just throws off. And you can't focus on the actual thing you're meant to be getting to. So that's a kind of key. One of the key lessons about productive disagreement is almost the kind of the uber uh, uh, lesson here is you've got to focus on the relationship. If you want the, the thing that you're actually talking about, if you want that that disagreement to be really productive. And I think one thing which showed that really well, and this, again, blew my mind, was that uh, children who were who argued more with their parents were happier than children who argued less with a few caveats, which again is something which I think most people listening to this will be like, are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, it's because, you know, the, 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 the children are given an opportunity to say what they really think and what they really feel, which, you know, if they if they're, if they're parents always avoid that kind of argument or shut it down that politely or aggressively, whatever it is, that they just shut down those disagreements, the, the, the children don't get a, a chance to, to speak their mind. And when people speak their mind, they're going to disagree, right? So you, you opening up disagreements is a way to enable, let people speak their minds. And when you do that, everyone learns about each other. You suddenly, you have to update your mental model of, of, of the person that is that you're disagreeing with. You suddenly think, oh, okay. I, I've been married for 20 years, but maybe I sort of lost track of how my partner really feels about this, you know, or, or, or my, my kid is, hey, maybe my kid's no longer five years old. She's actually 15. I just clocked that because mm. <laughs> she shouted at <laughs> me about something. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a way to kind of, you know, keep us up to date on, on, on what's really going on in each other's minds and hearts. So that, I think, leads us on to the uh, question which I hinted at to begin with. We're going to, what was the last really big Barney that you had with your partner? And James or Ian, you can go first, like, or, or whichever. Or is there, a, is there one which you keep on coming back to? Whatever it is, let's, let's make like it real. really big Barney. But, but that's partly because we have lots of little ones. Um, and, and that's one of the things that where I've kind of, I do feel like I've adjusted my behavior since since researching the book, which is I'm I'm more relaxed about it, like like having open disagreements with my like sort of uh, small and frequent you know, disagreements, including in front of the children. Like the, the there's often this kind of incident which is like oh, we're going to disagree about something here. Shouldn't do it in front of the children. Like some really shameful thing, you know, some sort of taboo that we should go into the, another room and do that. Wait till they've gone to bed. My God, we can't do that. And now I'm much more likely to, to say, to let them see that, yeah, mummy and daddy are disagreeing with something pretty directly, um, but that's all right. They still love each other. And, and, and so so they, they, they don't associate it with 
horrible, unbearable stress and, and, and tension. Um, yeah, which is a lesson I, I fear they've learned almost too well, uh, because they're certainly uh, not shy of getting into disagreements with me. I am a little careful about sharing things from my personal life, which involve my husband, Colton, because he is a lot more private than I am, which is something I've learned from oh, you uh, something that I've <laughs> learned from disagreements we've had about things. But one thing that um, recent is I am a lot more messy than my husband is, and I am not bothered by a certain level of mess. And he is. He, he really likes things to be very neat and clean and tidy. And so his level of what's acceptable, my level of what's acceptable are very different. And recently it's been really bothering him. And so we had a, yeah, it was probably fair to say it was an argument. You know, it wasn't like a terribly huge argument. We don't tend to have a lot of really, really bad arguments, but we had a discussion about it. And I think that I could feel in that, I hear what you're saying about the importance of the emotional element to convince the other party that actually it matters to you. Because if you just say, I really don't like it when this our stuff is left on the floor, I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting information. But if you get really upset with me about it, then I feel like it really matters to you. And maybe and I'll change my behavior more. And I think in this most recent one, he made it really clear that it really matters to him and upsets him. I do feel like this is such an interesting model because it goes against a lot of what I feel like I've been explicitly taught about how to navigate conflict um, effectively and humanely, which is uh, basically express your needs in a calm, non-angry way directly, but not angrily. So my therapist is always telling me, just say, what you want right and and i wonder whether actually that doesn't work and what your book kind of suggests is i need to get angry when it's something i really care about and that i really want i shouldn't restrain is that right though i mean it does seem to be anti-therapeutic in some sense uh yeah but that's, that's actually a really fascinating point because i'm good at those know, Ian. yeah <laughs> if you come from a i i don't come from a particular school of, of therapy but there are different schools of therapy so let's say like a I think the psychoanalytic school of therapy would say, you don't know what you want. Um, you know, I, and, and I think there's some truth in that. Like when you're emotional, like, you know, actually you say things that you didn't even realize that you felt. So I think, you know, sitting down and consciously thinking, you know, making a note of what do I want um, is fine, but I don't think you're accessing your full mind really. Um, that's why I say, you know, emotion is good for your thinking because actually it kind of uncovers all sorts of things. Uh, hopefully not too horrible, but the, the, and the, and they come out and you're like, oh yeah, actually, that's what I want, or that's what I I, I really care about. So it just the the emotion helps the kind of air lots more uh, of what you're both feeling and 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 thinking, or what you're in, in a group situation where you're all thinking and, and feeling. Uh, there was when I read about that, you quote this guy, Alan Sillers, who is a relationship expert who says talking it out doesn't work. And it made me my wife and I have been to a couples therapy at some things before we got married. Getting married was stressful and various other things. And we like just talking about it didn't solve it. Like we were just like we just got to this place. We're like, well, 
you think this, I think that. I still think you're wrong. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then and then it's, it's, it's like, yeah, we sort of go and re-say it. And then I'm going to re-say my opinion and you say your opinion. And uh, and then our therapist, God, I keep on having therapists fire me or say, do you want to do something else? But she just went, yeah, I think you'll probably have to go and sort of sort this out on your own. And we're like, oh, can you not? What's the point of no you solution then? That you're and so yeah. then you go on from this. I'm just trying to work out because you set the scene so beautifully about why conflict is important. And well, maybe before we get into your rules for conflict, it'd be good to like go and actually look in the workplace because I think there's some really interesting examples of where conflict is in fact something which can be really healthy. Organizations, companies like, like Southwest Airlines, which has a really kind of interesting culture of open conflict. And my basic thesis, again, is similar to the the wider theme is unless you have your direct disagreements out in, in the working place, they, they, they don't get submerged. They, they don't go away. They, they turn into passive aggression. They turn into in, in, into office politics, right? Um, and actually that kind of passive aggression is much more corrosive to the relationship than having an, an open and, and direct and honest disagreement. Um, and so one of your tasks you know particularly if you're a leader of, of, of a group or of, of a company is to create a, a culture where people do feel you know relatively relaxed about openly disagreeing with each other and and and, and so many workplaces put a huge emphasis on getting along and cooperation and collaboration which is great I, you know I, I like to get along with people I work with that's that's absolutely common sense but they don't put enough focus on open disagreement and debate being really important as, as well. And therefore you just get these tables of people who just kind of all nod along with each other and, and the quality of thinking and the quality of decision-making is degraded. Um, and ultimately the relationships degrade because it goes into office politics. So yeah, I, I one of the lens through which I look at this is rock groups um, because it just sort of struck me at some point that rock groups are like a great microcosm of, of, of a, a workplace, a, a small business. I mean, they are effectively kind of startups, right? Very interesting small businesses with, well, I was going to say more yeah, drugs yeah. than most, but you've, you've worked in the ad agency, so yeah, maybe exactly. not in so, some so cases. The, 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 the <laughs> You know, obviously there are huge differences from the normal workplace, but there are very interesting similarities too. You've got a bunch of very, um, you know, hopefully quite talented people who all have their own specialisms, whether it's bass playing or singing or whatever it is. Um, and they all come together in the hope that the, 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 the sum will be greater than the, than the parts, right? Um, and so that in that sense, it is kind of like a workplace. And I, I was struck by something that um, a, a rock, uh, uh, expert, I guess you call him, uh, a guy called Warren Zanes, who's a, who's a rock biographer. He used to be in a quite successful band himself. He's been around rock bands basically for like 30, 40 years. And he said to me at, at one point, you know, from my, in my experience, the bands that stay together and succeed are not the ones who, who are high fiving each other after every gig um, and hugging each other saying hey man you were, you were great um, those guys pretty much go by the way the wayside um, early on um, the ones that that stick around and get some success uh, are, are the ones that that have managed to to make their disagreements and, and their kind of conflict um, creative and there are different models right there isn't kind of one model for, for how, to, how to do that um, so REM, for instance, I talked to REM's 
manager and and he said you know these guys who are at the top of their game for like 20 years a remarkably long time to be that successful um they right from the beginning they they were they just sat down and and, and discussed every decision they made and they might have a kind of heated argument behind closed doors i, I didn't because usually they, they did it themselves but basically that was almost like a that was their ritual their, their routine was we, we sit down we discuss everything and then if one person still disagrees uh, they have a veto um and and so ultimately you know we move forward on 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 that basis i like the fact that they were from athens in georgia by the way it's quite quite an athenian kind of seminar kind of, that, so that worked for them that's not going to work for everyone they're all quite kind of like literate university kind of you know middle class kind of guys do you, do you know what I mean? and 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 not all bands like you could be very smart and intelligent in different ways and and i think the rolling stones are in, an example of where I don't think they sat around and had long conversations with each other, but they were very, you know, they're very good at just having their disagreements out, right? Sometimes very directly, um, Keith and Mick particularly, right? As, as we know, and again, the longevity is, is, is extraordinary. There's a story I tell in the book about them having a meeting um, in, in Amsterdam, um, and uh, I think they're probably on tour then, but they had had a meeting, a business meeting during the day. I don't know how well it went, but then they, they went out in the evening um, and they got back to the hotel and Keith and Mick went to, uh, went to Mick's room and they ordered some champagne and some smoked salmon. You know, this is what you do if you're in the Rolling Stones, right? <laughs> I mean, it's what you, James and I do yeah. as well. It's, uh, the, the non-religious ministry game is very similar. <laughs> and they decide to, you know, have a, have a, have a chat, and, you know, whatever they do um, at, at 2 a.m. In, in, in an Amsterdam hotel. Um, and Mick decides that he wants Charlie to, to, he decides to invite Charlie basically, and he calls Charlie's room and uh can i do my mick jagger impression i mean that's what we've been building up for really <laughs> that's the only reason why and i invited you he says where's my drummer um where, charlie where's my drummer and um there's a click at the end of the line doesn't get an answer it's like oh okay um they forget about it and then 10 minutes later there's a knock at, the, at their door open the door and there is charlie watts perfectly turned out in his saddle rose suit cologne you know combed hair and he smacks jagger in the face uh knocks him onto the table of smoked salmon and champagne nearly out of a nearby window um and he says don't ever call me your drummer again um and and, <laughs> and know, that was so did he become michael kane no, in the second I mean, half that impression? Like, it's impossible not to become it's michael like, <laughs> Uh, and uh, and now, I'm not recommending that people reproduce this, you know, physical violence in the in the workplace. Um, but as I say, very very cautious uh, comment. Everyone Ian. has their own way of dealing with. It. <laughs> Maybe you know if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Um, and and the, you know the Stones had that kind of confrontation, and then they moved on. You know, this was in the 1980s. They had a good 30, 40 years to go yet. Um, and, and I, I suspect that kind of, whether or not it was like punching in the face or, or, or just swearing at each other and telling each other to F off, whatever, probably happened, you know, happens and happened a lot. Um, and it was just their, their way of dealing with it. So, you know, REM model or the Rolling Stones model, or there are other models as well, 
there are ways to to deal with with direct disagreement and just and, and having it out when when i was reading that i was really struck by similarities in congregations and spiritual communities where there's always like a conflict resolution sort of process and the sign of a healthy uh, congregational community versus an unhealthy one will often be like whether this is for the long term good of the individual members, whether it's toxic, whether it is abusive. And uh, there was, was maybe two or three years ago when the Pope said uh, he said something he says like uh, about the dangers of gossip. And everyone was like, what on earth is the Pope talking about how gossip is the most dangerous thing, uh, one of the most dangerous things in the world. But like really gossip is un unresolved conflict. It is people who are not speaking to someone about a disagreement that they have. And so instead they go and speak to the person next to them and they try to organize and they do, uh, you know, a whole host of other things. And James, I reckon that at various stages in different communities you've been in, you've seen healthy and unhealthy conflicts. Like what are some of the sort of healthy conflict resolution systems that you've that you've seen or the ones that you use in uh, in the ethical society? Well, I'm society? happy to say that I think in our congregation, we have a pretty healthy system. We certainly had challenges when we had two clergy people. I was the junior one and we had a senior person. Right now we only have one because of COVID and we just, we're not open. So we feel like we only need one person. But when we had two, people would triangulate. They would come to one of us about the other one. And I think that that's kind of a conflict avoidance strategy and that they didn't want to go directly to the person and say, I've got a problem with what you said or what you did. So they come to the other person to try and resolve it. And we would have a very formal policy of saying, please raise that with the person who it's about, because I'm not going to talk to them about it on your behalf. You, you need to. And so that was a kind of culture that we put in place. And now I think partly because I'm very open about my own mistakes and I speak very openly about challenges we have in the community is something I learned from my predecessor is just to be very explicit about everything that's going on. I think we have a pretty healthy culture. Like, for instance, last, not Sunday as in yesterday, but last Sunday we had a speaker who presented some rather inappropriate content for our Sunday morning congregational gathering, some rather sexually explicit content. Ooh, yes, I what? know. I was shocked as well. <laughs> they thought for 11 a.m. on it? Sunday morning, a, a short clip from Animal House that included... Uh, um, well, I don't know if I can say it on this podcast. I can say anything on this podcast, right? Yeah, it, it was the phrase that I took exception to was fuck her tits, which I didn't think was quite appropriate for a church, essentially, uh, with kids present. I had to, the, the first oh. time ever, <laughs> break into a talk a from nightmare. an invited speaker and say, uh, actually, that's not appropriate for our uh, venues, too explicit and sexist uh, and misogynistic as well. Um, and the way we handle things like that is to be very, very explicit about what happened and say, this thing happened. A lot of you came to me with problems about it. I'm really glad you did. Thank you for coming to me with those issues. I'm happy to speak to more people about it. So we try and tell people that conflict's okay, that it's okay to disagree with. So I, another example is after I gave a talk once, one of my members came into the post-talk discussion and she was very angry. She said, Oh, something that you said made me really angry. And I said, good, tell me what it was. 
and we can talk about it. So we try and model positive conflict, but the, the places I have a challenge, and this is what I wanna ask you about, Ian, is I'm also part of organizations which are very conflict averse as a matter of culture. Like they would never talk about a conflict between two people, between two ideas. They just would rather, it feels to me like they would rather let it slide. And if you are the one to initiate a conflict and say, no, I really disagree with this, it's wrong. You're kind of the bad guy. And I don't know how to deal with that situation. So do you have any suggestions? No, I don't know how to deal with that either. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I'm not, I should, yeah, sorry. I should pretend I have all the answers, but it's a really interesting point because I, 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 I in the book, I really kind of am saying, I, I'm kind of advocating for cultures of positive disagreement, um, and I'm kind of saying how you, how, whether that's between two people or or, or, or five thousand people in a company, but but. Your, your question is more like if you're in a bad culture, you know, or a lo low disagreement culture, how do you negotiate that? That's actually a good question. I, I, I haven't haven't thought about the, the only thing you can do is is try and exercise some of those kind of muscles that uh, some of those skills that I talk about in, in, in the book and, and, and do your do your best and um, go extra hard on like um, complimenting the person that you're about to disagree with or you know making them feel good about themselves before you get to it you know I talk in the book about connect first connect before you get to the disagreement one, one of the problems that we have one of the mistakes that we make most frequently in disagreements we get to the disagreement too quickly um before we establish that relationship that firm basis for the relationship we get to the content before the relationship level um is settled um and if there's a way you can find to kind of establish that you are, I, I, that you, I'm okay with you and you're okay with me. Um, okay, let's talk about this thing. Um, so, so um, the so I, as you know, I, I talk to hostage negotiators and interrogators and people at the kind of extreme edge of of tough, tense conversations, and you get a huge amount of insight from those guys. And hostage negotiators do not pick up the phone and say right okay how are we going to get these hostages out or, or whatever that the negotiation is it's all sorts of different things um they they probably do it in a mick jagger yeah. episode, <laughs> or maybe michael kane to for people to know there's like pretty yeah, serious right. a lot of accents we're going to get these hostages out guys <laughs> how are we going to do that um so uh no they they are trained to pick up the phone and and really start by saying things like Look, I just want to say we've all been impressed by the way you've been handling this, and um, it's a tough situation for you. And you know, you've stayed calm, and it's really helped the situation. Whatever it is, but you, you, you're trying to make that person feel you're just calming them down, lowering their defenses, making them feel okay. We respect you. We understand what you where, where you're coming from, um, and this is a kind of level playing field. This conversation we're about to have. Now let's get into the negotiation. Do, do, do you see what I mean? So, so sequencing, you know, and I think whatever culture you're in, that kind of thing can help. 
One, I, I loved when you, so you've got these sort of uh, guidelines, which are sort of first connect is one of them. Let go of the rope, which is sort of don't try to control what the other person thinks. Don't try to correct them. Uh, give face, make people feel stronger about themselves. Like don't assume your culture is right. Uh, then uh, don't try to win, try to learn. One of my th things was like, this is so useful in an organization in a family, in a relationship uh, with people that you know. But I did think that like, this still doesn't solve the problem of the internet. Uh, no, like, I, you know, I, no, there I will be- to solve the problem of the internet. Um, I, I, I think that- no, Ian, it, come it, on. It, we came, we've got you for the Mick Jagger impression and, and solving the, the internet. internet. I'll, I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll do that next. Um, <laughs> I, I, to a certain extent, I think these things can help. Um, in, in the disagreements you get into online, I, I do think they can help. But um, I agree. The, the internet is, as we were talking about earlier, it's almost designed to to create bad disagreements because it's so low context. Um, and it, 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 at the same time as it relies on text and words, it also gives you very little to to, to play with. So you're uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting like stress test of you know if you're really really skilled at disagreement. Now try this. Try disagree. You think you're good? <laughs> try it on Twitter. <laughs> Henry Kissinger or whatever. Yeah. whatever you know, you, you you think you could? Well, I mean, yeah. he was pretty yeah. great at disagreement well, in some yeah, regards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's not get into that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's like yeah, it, it's 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 very tough. You're, you're right. I haven't solved that one. Uh, yeah, th though, I mean, obviously, like super useful in the sort of context that we're in, but it does one thing which uh, it was actually connected to something you said earlier in the book around this idea of like, what's your metaphor for conflict uh, is uh, so this uh, I've been reading up on the how metaphors are like the power of metaphors of uh, the work of Lakoff, uh, who was a uh psychologist psychologist when i'm in the in the uh, yeah uh late 70s early 80s and that that was you know start to look that actually when you sort of use the expression get one over you on on someone you know that is actually the language which is that you you feel that you're getting over on someone that these sort of the words that we use are really linked to uh the metaphors that we use are uh really linked to how we feel about things, like the expression, like how other people will feel about things. And actually maybe this, like, like there needs to be a change around how we see conflict itself, because we do feel that it is, it's a war when, when you said it should be more like a yeah, dance. I mean, the, the words debate and, and argument, they just come with this tinge of aggression and hostility you know, uh, and um, it, it's it's it, we don't really have a word for kind of um, non-hostile collaborative, you know, disagreement where we both <laughs> say, you know, we're both going to go into this like wholeheartedly, but but we're both doing it for, you know, for for for, for something that's that's greater than just me winning the argument, which is a pretty small goal, you know. That sounds like the sort of thing which that like someone's making an excuse for themselves after they've just had an argument. I'd say it's actually a non-hostile uh, positive disagreement. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, like you're desperately trying to euphemize the fact that you're, but like even yeah. like trying to find an alternative word ends up sounding uh, as though you're sort of dodging it. And then is there something that when you've gone, you've, 
like will have heard from readers by now and uh uh other who've spoken to people in various places like is there one thing that you found that people have most taken from it or like some of the things which you've the reactions you've had which have been particularly well I, not i mean a lot of the things that we've we've talked about um but i think um understanding that what you're trying to do is move the conversation away from a dominance struggle in in in, in into one where you, you you're both kind of passionate and you can both you can be emotionally kind of invested in in, in the outcome but you're not just focused on basically smashing the person over the other head. And, and now that's, but also you can manage the other person's response to you, you know, so you can create the opponent that you want, you know, you, you want your, your opponent, your adversary to be constructive and to listen to you and so on. Um, and that doesn't always happen. Like sometimes that's impossible. Sometimes you're just talking to a bad faith actor and, and he's just like, well, I tried um, the internet. So sometimes, yeah, which often happens on the internet. And sometimes you just have to walk away. But if you want that person to stay in the room with you, the last chapter is called staying in the room, you know, figuratively or, 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 or literally, um, then you, you, you try and help them be the best that they can be. Um, and sometimes that means assuaging their insecurities. Um, you know, sometimes you'll be in, in, in an argument where a person is being really unpleasant or, or, or irrational or whatever, emotional. And instead of just dismissing them, you know, and saying this is useless, think, OK, maybe the, 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 let's le at least see if I can stabilize that relationship level first. Then maybe we'll have a better conversation at the content level. So maybe I have to show them in some way that I respect them. Maybe I have to use some flattery. Uh, maybe I just need to compliment them. Maybe I point to an area where we do agree. Maybe I find some, so maybe I introduce some humor. You know, there's all sorts of different things you can do and you can kind of move through these different kind of like uh, uh, techniques. I hate the word technique actually, but you, 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 can, you can try these, these different strategies. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I think there's actually often a lot more that you can do than, than you realise at, at the start of a difficult, difficult conversation. Obviously, so firstly, I really appreciate thinking differently about conflict and about how it can be more positive. It's actually the sort of thing that I think would be very valuable for members of my congregation to talk about. I it's the sort of thing they really love of a new way of thinking about something that we often think of as the negative thing, but actually you're saying is can potentially be more positive. But of course they're- Particularly Jim, particularly Jim, who's a yeah, real Yeah, definitely. I hope you don't have someone who killed Jim. Uh, Sanderson, you have no idea the problems I have with Jim. <laughs> oh, no. um, but there's, there are um, destructive forms of conflict, right? Not all conflict is positive, and we all probably have experiences of that. So how, what's the quick way to tell the difference? I'm not sure there is a quick way. And I, I, I think that's partly what I was trying to get at just now, which is, I actually think we make our judgments a little bit too quickly about that. Like we, we rush to the conclusion that, oh, this person is just horrible. Uh, you know, uh, oh, this person is just being dishonest and I'm not gonna bother, this is terrible. Um, and I, I guess I'm advocating for a little bit more of a, bit more patience and a bit more okay let me just see if i can engage this person using some of the the, the things that we the strategies and tactics that, that that we've talked about and maybe i can't 
the, the other thing is sometimes you, you'll have observed that person in other interactions with other people. And, and maybe if you're watching closely, you'll see whether you, you can work out what, what, what's going on there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think there's a kind of, there's a quick way to tell. And in some ways I, I would say, just slow down and, 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 and see if you can, if you can see, you know, help them be a better version of, of themselves before you give up. Thank you. I really love that idea of how you can, you can go and create the person that you are uh, having the yeah. conflict with because we uh, will, it's very easy to think, oh God, it's, there's so many bellends around. <laughs> how can I just be in a world with fewer bellends? But uh, maybe you're creating them. How about that? That's something yes. Buddha said. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> Buddha said that. But better the bellend. Yeah, better the bell end, you know, uh, <laughs> something like that. I haven't said that word in ages. Oh, I love it. Uh, so, uh, Ian, uh, where can people find your book? Where can people get Maximum oh, wow. Ian Leslie? Um, well, you can find it in all good bookstores and and all bad bookstores, uh, presumably. You know, variability in, in quality of bookstore doesn't matter. It's just in bookstores. Um, it's called Conflicted. Um, it's got slightly different subtitles in the US and UK, so we won't go into that. Um, I have a website called ian-leslie.com, and I have a newsletter called The Ruffian, which I, I, I highly recommend. Um, it's meant to be amazing, I've heard. Uh, <laughs> Life-changing. Uh, that's what I've heard as well. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and follow me on Twitter, I'm Mr. Ian Leslie, but yeah, um, uh, please, please, um, you know, take a look at the book. I, I hope people will find it interesting. All right. Thank you so much, Ian. This has been uh, great. So, James, uh, what, are, what, what sort of uh, landed with you? What are your takeaways? Thinking differently about conflict so that we don't think of it as necessarily bad and even emotional kind of heavy conflict. Because I think that in my own mind, I always kind of felt like, well, yeah, there's there's bad conflict that everyone knows is bad, but then there's a, a good kind of conflict, which is kind of talking about your differing points of view in a relatively calm way. But what I thought was nice about what Ian was saying is that, no, the emotion is important, that actually the getting angry, getting upset can be an important, valuable part of conflict and we need to lean into that that it's okay to let yourself show your anger sometimes i think that was very very valuable and interesting yeah the emotion is the content uh, as well and that uh, obviously you know if we uh, end up displaying emotions which might be unhelpful or whatever else that might be then you know you don't want to be a uh, sort of victim of them either but uh yeah that's something which really landed and it made me have a uh sort of discussion with my wife like about this i, was like, I think i because I, I never get angry and that's not healthy uh the and i it was actually before i read this book that i, I decided uh i think a weekend ago or something like that i was like i'm gonna get angry with my wife about this because i think that's going to be the way that otherwise she won't listen. And I said, I'm going to choose to be angry with you about this. And 
it it worked. I think that like she heard it in a way which I mean it was quite awkward. Her mum was there as well, but I said and I, I and I made that choice to do it, and I don't think that it would have she would have heard it otherwise. And and it's so un me. Yeah, right. <laughs> it felt weird, but I think yeah, I, I I've got a lot of. Uh, uh, intrigue, like sort of unhelpful ideas around anger. Like I sometimes feel that, like if I give a little, then there's a fucking monster there. <laughs> so there's a uh, yeah. I had one relationship where we got angry with each other, and I didn't really get angry. And she was like, "Go on, it's you don't care, you don't care." And then I had about six months where I was like, "Who the fuck is this?" Because you are screaming. It was very weird. I don't That's not where I've been. So that was like, there, there's that or there's getting on. And this book was really helpful to go. Let's find that, that healthy uh, use of conflicted conflict. the, of the emotions of conflict. I think that yeah. is so fascinating uh, because it, it also helps me think about how, how I'm different in professional and personal settings. Like I really try and stay calm and be totally chill with my husband, because I feel like getting angry in that setting is bad. But actually in my workplace settings, I feel like I'm sometimes taking the role of saying, you're not angry enough about this. You know, that program was really bad and it could have been good. And it was bad because of something you failed to do. And I'm angry about it. And I don't understand why you're not angry about it. And I, I feel like often, in my broader professional context, everyone is so shocked and horrified by the anger, but I'm, I see it as I'm trying to communicate that this matters. It matters to me and it should matter to you. And so that part of it, when I think about it, it makes total sense. I just need to weave it in into the rest of my life or maybe find a balance or something. You've had the podcast, you've had James and I reflecting upon it, and now's the time where I just have a bit of a sort of update on what's happening in the Life on This Project. So I, I mentioned this last week, but I'm moving house and it is really quite something. You know, I'll do a lot of chatting about being mindful, about trying to be aware. I was reading Brother Lawrence and really loving uh, his talk about how everything can be, you know, he was talking about God, everything cannot be offered up to God, but I always try hard to look at life and to even when it's difficult and even when there's suffering and I'm not having a good time to try to connect to the bigger picture. But when you are moving house, hell man, that is hard. It is. To, we've been in this house for 10 weeks now and it's almost like I'm being assaulted by my stuff. You know, you're just, so it's like the reverse of being robbed. All your stuff is just there and everywhere and you move something from one place and it goes to another and it's uh, really quite a thing. I, I'd i always heard that um, moving house was stressful and I had, uh, let me tell you, they thought, well, it's stressful to some people, but, you know, people make a big deal about stuff. I take that back. I apologise to all the people I mentally doubted in my head before getting to that situation myself. Uh, anyway, uh, it now things are a bit more settled. It also then means that, uh, yeah, generally feeling good about sort of life on this proj. There's a lot of uh, business stuff which is happening, sort of going into companies and have had time to go and sort of uh, get on the front foot. Uh, 
about you know building the community side of things a bit more and so uh, yeah that's just uh, really great so uh, there we go once again thanks so much for listening you are wonderful and uh, you know I know there's going to be a lot of people who are going thing, through things which are even more stressful than moving house so whatever sit you're in uh, sending you huge huge love and life from uh, my very messy bedroom to wherever you are uh, thanks to you thanks to James for being a brilliant co-host uh, thanks to Mavs for being a really wonderful producer when you hear this better know that uh, thanks to uh, Will Andrews for the artwork and to Roman Rapak and Miroshot for the music that you're listening to right this second <laughs>